As we were singing, I figured out why Dale looked a little surprised when I called for the song, because normally we have the, the prayer for our church plant before that song, and that's what was in the schedule of service. Going from memory, I missed that here today. So we will pray for a church plant, but I'm going to hold that till the end after our ser- sermon, and we will spend some time praying as we conclude our service this evening. I didn't plan it this way, but it's been over a month since we were last in our study through the book of Revelation. There, there was a vacation that I had planned, a conference that I had planned, but I did not have a planned a, a sickness in that schedule, but the Lord did. So all of that combined to extend this break that we've had in this series now for several weeks. With that amount of time, I, I want to spend just a, a couple of minutes here and give us a short review of where we are at the series and to make sure that we're, we're all up to speed again. We're, we're positioned in our study very near the end of the tribulation timeline. That, that seven-year period of divine judgment when we have the, the various the judgments of God coming upon the earth. We have the seven bold judgments that have just rapidly been poured out. They, they were the final three of the three sets of, of judgments. We had the seven seals opened, and, and when they were opened earlier in our series, the seventh seal you know, showed seven trumpets. The, the seven trumpets were blown, and they sounded out, and, and the seventh trumpet contained the seven bowls. And now we are far enough along in our series where the seven bowls were poured out, essentially bringing us to the end of the seven-year period. Now we know that the tribulation culminates with the return of Christ. From, from the flow of time perspective, if we're walking through through sequence of things, that's the next event that, that we expect after the cataclysmic uh, destruction of the seventh bowl. The, the sixth bowl in, in Revelation chapter 16, it, it prepared the way for the armies of the earth to gather at the, the place that's called Armageddon. And, and they gathered for a final battle to face off against Christ as he returns. The seventh bowl that followed that preparation brought massive destruction, the destruction such as the world has never seen before. In fact, let's go back to chapter 16, and let's read the verses that, that describe the final bowl, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 16. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. So great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because this plague was extremely severe. Every time I read those verses, I think, as devastating as they are, this has to be one of the greatest examples in literature of understatement, when it says extremely severe Think about what's happened. A hundred pound hailstones. Yeah, extremely severe is an understatement. Earthquake that such as the world has never seen before. And then it says it was so mighty. Yeah, it was mighty, all right. We've seen extreme devastation, yet nothing like this. Well, chapter 17 began a two-chapter interlude 
that, that John gives us further statement of part of verse, uh, verse 19 that I just read. In, in verse 19 it says, Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. Babylon, you, you may remember, was the capital of the Antichrist. And the question comes up is, why is this one city called out for this special divine destruction? All of the world is, is under a great destruction at this point. Why is this one city called out for an extra level of that? Well, 17 and 18 are answering that question. 17, chapter 17, focused on religion. And we saw in that chapter that, that throughout the history of the world, there, there's been a link between all the major empires that dominated the world and false religion that opposed God. The, the religions were the unifying center of these empires. And the false religion in that chapter was depicted as a harlot, and the, the history of false religion was, was briefly sketched out. The empires used religion to influence people, and at the same time, uh, false religion used the empires to give a, a civil framework um, and within it, the religion could flourish. They, they worked together in harmony with each other, the empires and the religion. During the first half of the tribulation period, the, the Antichrist used worldwide ecumenical religion to consolidate his power and, and, and help him rise to dominance, a dominance that was centered there in Babylon. So that's why it led up to Babylon, the capital. We also saw in that chapter that the midpoint of the tribulation, the, the Antichrist destroyed the false religion because he wanted to be the sole object of worship. He didn't want any syncretistic religion that, that worshipped many gods. He wanted to be the only god that would be worshipped. And then flowing out of his capital, he instituted a great persecution against the saints of God. It originated in Babylon and flowed throughout the world throughout the remainder of the tribulation period. So for that reason, Babylon was worthy of great judgment. Chapter 18 then adds secular component that, that extended the ex explanation of Babylon's well-deserved demise. Babylon, this seat of uh, power that the Antichrist had, it, it was the center of a worldwide government. Nations and kings and merchants, they, they all united in an ungodly union with this, this city. They, they became rich through their association, but it was all ungodly through and through, extremely immoral. And we're given a glimpse in that chapter of the sudden destruction that befell the cities through the eyes of those who would mourn her loss, those who reaped the benefit of her wealth, the, the kings and the merchants and the sailors. They, they saw their, their power and their riches go up in smoke as Babylon was destroyed. Well, that brings us to our chapter this evening. Tonight, we, we finally come to, to what we've been waiting for really since the beginning of the book. We finally come to the return of Christ. As Christ returns, the, the timeline picks up again. We, we leave this interlude and, and we start moving forward in, in, in sequence of, of events once more. Before the timeline can move forward, though, we, we have to finish out the interlude of, of the previous two chapters, the, that which began back in 17 chapter, or chapter 17, verse 1. 17 and 18 re recorded the destruction of Babylon upon the earth, and, and they record it from the earthly perspective. But we see at the beginning of chapter 19 that simultaneously, while there's mourning going on on the earth because of Babylon's destruction, there is heavenly celebration over Babylon's demise. 
And that's where chapter 19 picks up. And in a way, it's unfortunate that we have the chapter break here because it, it's part of the interlude. But there's a switch as we move our gaze, as, as God, John, through the visions he's received, moves his gaze from why Babylon was destroyed upon the earth and the earthly view of things to a heavenly view, all in preparation for the return of Christ. Heaven was waiting for the vindication of Christ. It has been waiting for a long time. All the way back in chapter 6, we had the saints that, that were under the altar, the, the martyred saints, asking, how long do we have to wait? Countless additional saints have been slain now through the, the persecution of the Antichrist. So, so it really is no surprise that when Babylon, the, the center of Antichrist rebellion, finally falls, there's no surprise that heaven erupts in great celebration. The, the first ten verses of chapter 19 not only conclude the interlude of the last two chapters, but they, they also show a response to each of the, the aspects of the previous two chapters, the, the religion and the, the secular aspects from a heaven's perspective. The first five verses are the counterpart to chapter 18. Unbelievers mourned the overthrow of Babylon. They mourned the loss of riches. But in heaven, there's rejoicing versus mourning. Let's look at verse 1. After these things, so after the things he saw of the destruction of Babylon, after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. <clears throat> because his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. As surprising as it is, this is the only chapter in the New Testament in which the word hallelujah occurs. We're so familiar with that word. We, we sing songs of hallelujah all the time, and yet this is the only chapter in the New Testament. Verse 1, then, is the first time we find that word in the New Testament. We, we know the word well from, from the Psalms. We know it from countless songs. It is quite familiar. It's simply a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase that means praise the Lord. So every time we're saying hallelujah, that's what we're saying is praise the Lord. We're actually saying it kind of in Hebrew, uh, real close to the Hebrew pronunciation. That, that means that, that when we're singing the children's song around, you know, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. What's the next line? Praise ye the Lord. All we're doing is translating our, our first phrase when we sing that song. We're, we're just singing a translation to each other. Well, in our verses, as heaven rings out with rejoicing over the destruction of Babylon, this word heads up the praise offered to God. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Praise him for his faithfulness to his covenant promises. The, the great multitude of verse 1 is probably angels. Uh, every other time in Revelation when we've seen great multitude in heaven, it's been angels, so that's probably who it is again. These, this angelic host of praising God for his salvation, 
praising God for his glory, praising God for his power. All of these things are displayed as he judged Babylon, as this destruction rained down upon this evil city. It's significant to note, in, according to verse 3, the destruction of the city is irreversible. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Uh, of course, when, when this earth is replaced with the eternal state, the ruins of the city will no longer exist. But, but what this means is throughout the coming millennium, as long as this earth remains, there, there will be a constant reminder of God's judgment upon the Antichrist, specifically upon his capital. For a thousand years, they'll be able to look and see this smoke that, that reminds the people God judged the Antichrist at his capital. The 24 elders and the, the four living creatures, they, they surround the throne of, of the Father and, and add their, their agreement to the praise. They're, they're the ones closest, if you remember, going back to chapter 4, they're the ones closest to the throne of God, and, and they echo the praise. Of, then we have a voice from the throne, most likely another angel, although it's not identified. We have another voice, an angel most likely calling out for all the saints to add in their voices, everyone to join in. Let's, let's combine our praise to God because he has destroyed Babylon. It's a scene that comes together of great rejoicing in heaven as the heavenly occupants view the destruction of Babylon. All that time of wondering, how long must we wait, comes to an end. That's the rejoicing versus mourning displayed in the first five verses as counterpart to, to, verse, or to chapter 18, but, but we also have a counterpart to chapter 17. The, the next verses display the bride versus the harlot. Chapter 17 was all about the harlot, the, the religious rule of or the religious influence of that that rose up against Christ. Well, now we have the bride. Look at verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. He was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The harlot of false religion led the nations to rebel against God all throughout human history. According to chapter 17, the, the, the harlot was self-serving. And ultimately, if you remember at the end of chapter 17, the harlot was stripped of her garments as the Antichrist rose up. Well, in contrast, the bride of Christ is beautiful. The bride of Christ is perfect. The, the singers con continuing to praise God are probably still this great angelic host that, that are, are part of the multitude of heaven. Yet the, the focus of their praise shifts from, from the destruction of God to the, the marriage of the Lamb to the bride. They rejoice that the bride of Christ has made herself ready. That, that verse that I read after our communion service re 
reminded us that the reason Christ gave his life was so that he could present the church holy and blameless. Here is the church, holy and blameless. Throughout the New Testament, the bride of Christ is the New Testament church. Now, I was somewhat amused, frankly, as I read commentaries this week from those who, who do not hold to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church because they struggle. How can they get the church and Christ together for the, the marriage? There, there's nothing in the, the flow of events that suggests that Christ has returned at, at this point in, to the earth. We're, we're in this interlude where before he comes. We're, we're in this interlude explaining why the city of Babylon has destroyed. There, there's nothing that suggests Christ has come. And yet, here's the church in Christ being married. As I mentioned a few times, it, it seems as if it's the destruction of the city that spurs the Antichrist to confront, confront Christ with his armies. But that's future. That's yet to come. So the challenge of those who do not hold to a pre-tribulational rapture when they come to this passage is how then, if the church is still on earth waiting for Christ to return, how can heaven be filled with praise for his marriage? From a pre-tribulational position, we don't have a problem with that. We believe that the, before the tribulation begins, the, the church was raptured from the earth, and that means that by this point, the church has been part of the heavenly throngs for nearly seven years. During that time, we've had the beam of seat judgment. That's, that's part of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. And then that's followed by the marriage itself. It's the marriage supper, the, the celebration of the marriage that is yet to come. That's an event that, that will occur after Christ establishes his kingdom on the earth. That will come because the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints will join Christ and his bride in this grand celebration that, that will run for a thousand years. One thing to note in, in verses 7 and 8 is, again, a careful balance that we, we find throughout Scripture between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. We, we often see a tension between these two, that, that there's human responsibilities, we have things we t should do, but yet God is absolutely, completely, divinely in control of all things. We see a tension there, but the Bible does not. In, in verse 7, it's the bride who has made herself ready. In other words, the church, Christians. They have done what they need to do be, to become the prepared bride of Christ. The bride has made herself ready. And in the very next phrase in verse 8, it was given to her to clothe herself. There we have the bride acted on by God, who, God who is frankly praised for her preparation. There, there really is no tension. As always, we are to act in obedience. We are to conform to the, the pyramids of Christ that, that we're called to in salvation. But we're to do that while also realizing that whatever is accomplished is by God's grace. It occurs under his divine sovereignty. Verse 10 then concludes the interlude. We finally reach the end of the interlude that ran from 17 up to 19, verse 10. And the interlude concludes with the attention shifting back to John's angelic guide. Back in Revelation 17, verse 1, it was one of the angels, the, the seven angels that poured out the final seven bowls, one of those angels took John on this tour to explain why this had to happen, to show him these, these visions. Well, here at the end of all this, John's overwhelmed by what he's seen on this brief tour of, of events that, that led up to and concluded 
in the destruction of Babylon, and, and John falls before the angel and, and worships the angel, or begins to, attempts to. The angel promptly rebukes John, though. God alone deserves worship, and the angel will not accept worship. That concludes this joy, the joy over the bride of Christ in contrast to the, the harlot. It serves to conclude this heavenly celebration over Babylon's demise. And with that, we now have sufficient information for the tribulation timeline to once again move forward. We, we can step back into the flow of time. The, the way for the Antichrist to assemble his worldwide army has been cleared. His capital has been destroyed. That, that gives him... The, the impetus for gathering his army together apparently knows that Christ is coming. It is time now for that to happen. In the last half of the chapter, we have, at last, the victorious return of Christ. Throughout this book, we've observed that the words, I saw, indicate a shift of some sort in John's perspective. Well, in these verses, there's three of these shifts. Three times we... In the last remaining verse of this chapter, John's vision shifts with these words, I saw. This really is the, the final part of the action phase of the seventh bowl. The seventh bowl comes back, but it finishes up the tribulation with Christ coming. As the timeline of the tribulation moves forward, John first sees the appearance of Christ. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Clearly, everything I just read shows Christ coming as a divine warrior. He's coming in righteous judgment. He's coming to make war against his enemies. There are numerous symbols throughout the verses that I just read. They all work together to emphasize his majesty, his victory. I won't drill down on all of them. I fear that that would consume more time than we want to spend tonight. But I think also if we drill down on all the symbols, it actually can sometimes distract us from the overall picture that's created when we take all these symbols together. The, the collective imagery that we have here is majesty and victory. One thing that I do want to note is in verse 12 we're told he has many diadems. In other words, many crowns. The, the meaning of that is that he is coming not simply as king of the Jews. He is coming as king over all the nations. He has the rightful authority to rule all the earth the, the Antichrist, he divvied out diadems, he, kingships, to these various ten rulers that would follow him, if you remember in the previous chapters. Christ has all rule upon him. He, he wears crowns for every nation, many diadems. We also have this imagery of his robe dipped in blood, and that imagery is taken from Isaiah chapter 63, the, the first part, where Isaiah 
prophesies that God's anointed would judge the nations of the earth. Isaiah begins chapter 63 with these words, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in his greatness of his strength, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress trough alone. And from the, the peoples there is no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my remnant. Isaiah was given this picture centuries before of, of the Messiah coming in and trampling his enem enemies to the point where his garments would be sprinkled with blood. And, and that image now is called forth here. The armies... That come with Christ, mentioned in verse 14, these are re the redeemed, the, the bride in, in her fine linen. Uh, according to Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, there, there will also be angels that come with returning Christ, but, but they're not mentioned here. The bride is coming along, but the focus is on Christ. It's foc the focus is on his glory. The fact that these others are with him is just an afterthought. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He is the one who welds the powerful sword of his words. He is the one who comes to execute the wrath of God. He is the one who is awesome in every way, terrifying and exciting to behold. That's the impression we're supposed to get as we read these verses. And then in verse 17, John's attention is, is suddenly attracted to a specific angel who, who has an invitation, an invitation to the birds. Look at verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. Loud voice here from the angel issues the summons to the bird and that indicates that something is important, uh, something important is about to happen, this loud voice. And what happens is that these birds are summoned. These, these are birds of prey, the carrion eaters. They, they are to come to a scene from their perspective of a great feast, a feast upon the flesh of men of all sorts. It will soon be theirs for the taking. It does not matter if the man was a king or a slave. They're, they're all about to die in this coming battle. Same with the horses that they ride on. All are about to die. And that brings us to the battle itself, what I'm calling the brief battle. In verse 19, the brief battle. And I saw the beast. There's our words again. I saw John's gaze shifts. And I saw the beast. So he's looking out at the earth, the beast, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the earth and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Verse 19 begins with this panoramic view of the situation. We have the beast, we have the Antichrist, we have all the kings of the earth, and then we have all their armies assembled. The, the Antichrist had summoned them, and now they've assembled, prepared to make war against Christ and, and his armies of saint. 
In your mind's eye, you can see the picture of these forces filling the entire countryside of, uh, of the area of Armageddon. So get that vision in your eye. Thousands and thousands and thousands of troops arraigned in, in battle formation. And then suddenly the battle is over. There, there's nearly more details given in the invitation to the birds in the two verses than, than we have of the battle itself in verses 20 and 21. In fact, if it were not for all the, the details that are given to remind us of who the false prophet is, because the false prophet kind of dropped out of sight as the focus went to the Antichrist, we kind of lost track of the fact that he had this, this agent, this false prophet that was leading the, the religion to worship him. If it weren't for all the words that remind us who the false prophet is in verse 20, there would probably be more words in verses 18 and 19 than we have in verse 20 and 21. The battle is so brief. We have no information as to how the Antichrist and false prophet are seized. They, they simply are. Despite all the forces surrounding them, they're, they're simply plucked up and immediately thrown into the lake of fire. Now, I have explained this before in our study, but again, we need to keep track of the distinction between Hades and the lake of fire. Hades is the temporary place where the dead go. It's a holding place for those awaiting judgment. The, the lake of fire is the eternal destiny for, for all the damned. It, it's what we would consider hell. The, the place referred to in the New Testament as Gehenna. It's into the eternal place that, that these two individuals are thrown. They're thrown there alive. Their final judgment is immediate. They don't wait for any further judgment. The, the fact that they're sent into the lake of fire alive indicates that they're not simply human any longer as well. Re remember that the beast, the Antichrist, has already been raised from the dead by Satan. That the false prophet had abilities to, that, that point to a special union with demonic forces. Somehow they're unique and they're ready all for their final destiny all, already. And they're thrown there alive. The remaining aspect of the battle is stunningly brief. We're simply told the rest were killed. It's that simple. Christ speaks. He uses the sword of his mouth, his, his words, and all those arrayed against him. However vast your imagination is to fill this great number of troops in battle array prepared to meet him, they're simply slain. All that is left is for the birds to eat their fill. It's a gruesome scene. A gruesome scene, but one that we've been prepared for since chapter, seven, or chapter 14, when we were given an advanced glimpse in an interlude, we were given the advanced glimpse that, that when this time finally comes, the blood would flow for 200 miles and reach to the depth of a horse's bridle. So we've expected it to be gruesome, and here it is. And that completes the short record of Christ's return. There, there's more things to come in the next chapter be, because he has returned, but his victorious return is, is complete with this final battle of the tribulation that, that's decided by his words alone. He simply speaks and it's done. Which doesn't surprise us. The God who spoke creation into existence can certainly speak and, and destroy all those arraigned, arraigned against him. What we need to ask ourselves this evening is what impact this information should have on our lives. This 
like all things we've been looking at in this book, this is sometime in the future, assuming that, that we know Christ will be part of those riding behind him when he comes. Yet John's given us this vision so that, or John was given this vision rather, so that he could pass along to the church so that the church would have it and in, so that it could impact us now. Before the rapture occurs, what impact should it have? I believe the general impact is similar to what we've seen throughout many of the chapters of this book. It's the impact that the, the, this image of the returning Christ should change our perspective now. The image of the returning Christ should change our perspective now. We are on the winning side. But how should it change our perspective now? I, I want to Suggest just a couple options. There, there's a lot of ways, I believe, knowing that we're on the winning side should affect how we operate now. But there's a couple things that I think can think of from what we've just read this evening. One is, I think it should change our perspective regarding death. One thing that, that the COVID pandemic has, has demonstrated is we live in a world that, that frantically tries to avoid death. Now, now, I'm not suggesting that, that death is inconsequential, but it is coming. In fact, when Christ returns, our, our Savior will personally bring death about on a scale never before encountered in this world. I think we should examine ourselves and assess whether our view of death is primarily influenced by the world that, that frantically tries to avoid it, or by Scripture that says it's inevitable. The world presents death as something that we must avoid. Scripture presents death as something that we must prepare to encounter rather than avoid. We prepare for death by trusting Christ as our Savior. That's first and foremost. But then we also prepare for death by using the lives he gives us to serve him. To serve him until our last breath. So rather than avoiding death, we should be looking at how can we serve him until death. The image of the returning Christ it should change our perspective, I think, our perspective of death, as we see death so rampant in this, in this text. Another idea, another option, I think that the image of the returning Christ should, should change our perspective. It should change our perspective regarding the future. In, in the most magnificent image to this point, we, we see, as, as we've talked about already, our Savior returns victorious. The, the combined power and authority uh, of the entire rebellious world arrayed in one place at one time, all the rebellion the world has to offer, it, it cannot stand against him at all. It's simply swept aside by his words. So why would we ever doubt that the circumstances we face now might, in some sense, not be leading toward that moment. Think about it. Until the moment Christ opens his mouth to slay his enemies, it appears that the rebels are winning. Until the moment he opens his mouth and slays those before him, it looks like the Antichrist is in charge. He's the one assembling the great armies of the earth. He's the one calling the shots on the earth. It looks like the rebels, led by the Antichrist, at the very least have a chance. 
They're massive in their arraignment. But they don't have a chance at all. We need to remember, when we face all sorts of rebels now against God, they have no chance either. Regardless of appearances, regardless of what it may look like at the moment, rebels against God do not have a chance. Any progress that is made around us by immorality and ungodliness, as, as we see this creep into the public policy of our nation, as we see ungodliness and immorality become accepted norms in the world, we need to remember that's nothing more than a mirage. It is not winning. It's not real in that it cannot last. Our Savior can and will wipe it aside when he chooses to do so. The image of the return in Christ should remind us of, of this truth once more. Rebellion against God will not win. The image of the return in Christ should change our perspective now. 